Assalamualaikum and welcome back to the second episode of Faith Adelphia for the second part of our episode on mental health with our three guests, Dr. Kareem Latif Salam, Duria Shamsi, and psychotherapist Huma Raja. We will be speaking about racism and the impact that it has on our mental health within the Muslim community. what you said was actually something that a lot of millennials and Gen Zers feel because they have parents who immigrate to America and they go through like the most difficult process, working unbelievable hours, you know, really struggling. And so then those children who may, you know, find that they are depressed or anxious or have some sort of, you know, and something, you know, they feel like their mental health isn't the best, you know, feel ashamed and they feel like, you know, they kind of invalidate their feelings because, you know, they see their parents and they think, you know, why do I feel this way? Am I ungrateful? Is, am I doing something wrong? Am I thinking a wrong way? And they kind of, you know, dismiss how they feel because they feel like my parents did everything for me. Why do I feel this way? Am I ungrateful? Am I not religious enough? Is it, you know, I think that's like a really important point that you mentioned. And it's a vicious cycle as well, Hamna, because the parents sort of look, look at them and they're like, you know, we went through all of this, we immigrated, we made such, you know, such huge sacrifices, we gave you everything. So what are you complaining about? Mm-hmm. So well, I thought that to add sorry. on that a little bit, because yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm South Asian, I, the three of us are South Asian, except for, you know, Dr. Salam is not. Um, but there is a growing amount of mental health issues including depression and suicidality in South Asian communities, especially I think particularly in South Asian females. Um, And despite this, we are one of the populations that have the lowest rates of utilizing mental health services. Um, You know, historically and currently, we kind of touched about this, but historically and, and at present, people do defer to their religion or their culture sometimes to define the mental health issues. You know, they're assigning the cause to something supernatural superstitious, like in South Asian, we have Nazar, which is like the evil eye. Um, you know, some Muslims might say there's a jinn, which, you know, is this like being from another dimension that's kind of messing with you or tormenting you. Um, and then we also have this collectivist approach in South Asian culture, as well as several other cultures, which is, it's not about you, it's about everyone. So it's not about the individual. Um, so people are generally or genuinely afraid of what the community will think. Um, There's also this real fear of bringing shame upon your family and being perceived as weak, quote unquote. And again, to piggyback with the immigration, yeah, South Asians immigrated here. They've been identified as being this proud, strong work ethic and resilient type people, like the model citizen essentially, right? Asian South Asians are kind of considered the model citizens. And so they're trying to assimilate in a different country and fit in. And the last thing that they want to do is be seen struggling to others. You know, they don't want to be seen as struggling because they're assimilating. They're in a different country. They're kind of like fit into this role of being like this good citizen. Um, And 
South Asians don't typically talk about or focus on feelings. You know, you don't kind of sit around a table and, and ask each other how you feel. Um, we don't create this perfection, perfectionism yeah. facade, right? That yeah. everything is perfect. Everything is hunky-dory. Yeah. And I also think that um, because of the lack of education about mental health, people don't even recognize the symptoms, particularly. And I think this is kind of like something that I think feel is pretty important when they manifest as physical symptoms. You always hear like aunties and all these people in the community talk about like physical aches and pains that kind of just get dismissed as like back aches or my legs hurt, whatever. And it kind of almost makes you wonder like what else is going on? Is there some sort of anxiety that's manifesting as a physical, you know, they can't even recognize the symptoms. Um, and then there's an aversion to physicians. People don't want to go to the doctor and they try trust in home remedies and they try to do all of these things at home. So there's a lot of things I feel like, and, and, and that doesn't even touch all of it, but there's a lot of things that are going on. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's important to recognize that there's just this overall profound lack of education and lack of resources to address what's going on, particularly in these countries. You, you know what else is worth mentioning? Um, parents and grandparents have to understand that their journeys are different from their, their offspring and, and, and their grandchildren. So for example, uh, let's say life was difficult in uh, whatever part of South Asia folks are coming from and they came to the states to make a better life just think about it. you're 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 going to a new world so you're leaving your village where you know uh you were the dominant culture uh you were psychologically fostered in your approach to life and then you come to america where you're a minority now and you know everyone's struggling to fit in but then you have an event like, let's say, 9-11, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a light shone upon you and you have inherited, you know, the, the, the sins of others who may have professed, who may profess to, sh to share your faith. And, and, and now it's almost like all eyes are on you. So what, what parents and grandparents have to understand is that their children are and grandchildren are surviving in America. They're not really, they're, they're not coming from the motherland, wherever that is, they're in America. And so, and they're different standards. And so you don't have the fortification of your village, your community, uh, the way you had it in the motherland, if that makes sense. And, and also, so, yeah, I'm sorry. And so you, you have to think of, well, what is best for my children and my grandchildren in this environment? And just to give you a quick example, I, I'm from um, an urban environment, Brick City, Newark, New Jersey. But I, I, I left Newark, New Jersey and my children's and, and, and my dad was not a physician. So my children, their father is a physician and, and they just, their upbringing is completely different from mine. So th their worldview is gonna be, it's gonna be somewhat different from mine based on our 
diverging experiences, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so folks have to appreciate that. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point because, I mean, as a mother of two, um, you know, adolescent boys, um, you know, the added onus on them where they're staggering two cultures, that's also a huge onus on them. I mean, I see my boys, you know, we have a Muslim culture at home, but yet, you know, their friends are drinking and they're smoking and they're dating. So that's also, that's, that's a lot for these children, for these adolescents. And we, as Dr. Salam said, um, you know, it would behoove us as parents to, to sort of empathize with their experience because it's completely different from us. And it, there is a complete different set um, um, you know, responsibility of pressure, of anxiety on, on these adolescents. I grew up in Pakistan and I just grew up, you know, my, my home, school, community, everything was the same. It was the same culture. Yeah. Um, so our, our children, have, you know, deal with that. Yeah. And, and we need to empathize with that experience. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a first generation, um, you know, Pakistani American, American Pakistani rather, but <laughs> sometimes I don't know which one comes first, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey, but I also grew up in a community of other Pakistani people. So it was kind of like, they've almost brought the village here. And so it was like, you're kind of struggling with like the village culture, right? But then you're in America and all of your friends are not the same culture as you, not the same religion as you. And so you're kind of trying to find this, like, especially I feel like in middle school, high school age, I, once you get older, you kind of, at least in my case, resolved a little bit of it. But I think when you're young and you're kind of in that like adolescent stage, you're trying to navigate, you know, your community, what people are going to think, you know, what your family's going to think, the family's rules, the Muslim rules, the Pakistani rules, and then living in a Western civilization. So a lot of those things don't align and they don't match and you kind of have to like navigate that and it's difficult. So it would be nice to have, you know, parents who were understanding or at least maybe if they can't personally understand what's going on, at least try to make an effort to kind of, you know, get the struggle and, and not just like sweep it under the rug and kind of say, it's okay. Like you're, you know, I feel like in our culture, they don't really give you explanations for things. They kind of just say, it's just because that's the way it is or like, but that's the rules. And so I think it's really important to create a dialogue with your children and kind of like understand their perspective and then give them your perspective and then also have them participate in making their own choices with you and, and navigating them. And I think that's something that, you know, we're starting to learn my general understanding is that the more where people westernize or assimilate the more they become receptive and open to western ideas and culture so I think I do see that with like people my generation or first generation or second generation with mental health they're becoming more and more open to the concept of mental health so my hope is that as we kind of evolve and and gain more understanding of the western world and and these cultures and these identities like will become more open to the concept of destigmatizing mental health. I think yeah, just to add one more thing to this, I think what Homa said, you know, when we don't have those open channels of communication, when we don't have that dialogue with our children, they, they go out, we call it in behavior science, it's called behavioral contrast. So at home, you know, they'll pretend to be the best Muslims and the best Pakistanis, for example. And, but when they're out with their friends, they're doing all sorts of things, completely rebelling 
um, from what their parents had taught them. So, and we see that, we see that in our community, in our culture. And so I think it's best if we have that dialogue, if we can talk to our children about absolutely everything. I talk to my boys about, much to my husband's chagrin sometimes. <laughs> absolutely, I, no, no topic is yeah, off limits. Yeah, sorry. I think that's something else that's really important to recognize is like the way we speak to ourselves. So like whom are just like you, I'm first gen, right? And I mean, I think we all in our, on this panel kind of have dealt with racism and colorism in our community. And even though, you know, whom are you're millennial, I'm Gen Z, you know, things may not be as bad as it was for our parents, you know, you know the colorism that they kind of experienced um, and the racism. I still think a lot of it is internalized and in, in turn kind of affects our mental health the way we see ourselves, the way we kind of see ourselves in society, how we kind of are trying to make sure that, you know, like we're experiencing racism from, you know, say the typical white person outside. And then at not at home, but for some people at home, you know, they might face, you know, colorism or may hear it from other people kind of, you know, always be ridiculed on the way they look or their skin color, you know, trying to be propped up to be a certain person or only do one certain thing in life, if that makes sense. And I think that it's also important to kind of recognize um, how that affects our mental health collectively and how we can also change that for the future and for the future generations as well. So we can change these toxic ideas and you know, make sure that you know, future generations don't have to experience what we go through. Yeah, colorism is a major global construct. I mean, it exists in several communities, especially again, the South Asian community. Um, and basically what it is, is it's just when you have preferential treatment based on whether you have light skin or not um, within the same race or ethnicity. So people of the same race or ethnicity discriminate against you if you're darker skinned. And um, with colorism, you know, skin tone is one of the most significant and important standards to define beauty. And, you know, we see this in multi-billion dollar industries for skin uh, bleaching, skin brightening, improving complexion, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, darker skin individuals, they can be discriminated against. And they are when it comes to opportunities for education, jobs, marriage prospects, you know, people who are doing like arranged marriages or things of that sort. I mean, it, it can really impact that. Um, and I think this is something that's being studied more and more now. And, you know, I'm not sure what the literature says, but I do know that there's probably this general agreement. And I, I certainly believe that it can cause or worsen mental health. Um, things like body image issues, anxiety, low self-esteem, depression, trauma, um, body dysmorphia, substance use, you know, things of that cutting, things of of that nature. And then, you know, in addition to those, you have the emotional responses, responses, which is like fear, shame, stress, guilt, fear, uh, you know, fear of being judged by the color for the color of your skin, things of that sort. And I, I can't really speak so much about racism because I haven't really experienced it. And I don't deal with, um, you know, population therapy populations that kind of bring that up, but with colorism. Yeah. I mean, you do, you do see it still prevalent in a lot of communities, including the communities that are here first generation, you know, people are ostracized if they're a little bit darker, or you're considered more beautiful, not just not because of your features, but because of the, the color of your skin. And that still exists in, in the communities that are, you know, assimilating or, or kind of in the US or immigrating here. Uh, I think it's 
thank you for that excellent introduction, Puma. Appreciate that. This is a, a really fraught topic, but I think just one basic is that colorism is man-made. This is, it's an invention. It's not something that's descended from the heavens. It is a man-made invention. A lot of it has to do with uh, European colonialism and imperialism, but also I believe there was significant colorism in the Indian culture that predates much of, of what was happening in Europe. Uh, but these are man-made inventions and they're people of uh, all different hues who have achieved phenomenal things. So, uh, but it, it's, it's kind of baked in uh, to the environment. Like when you think about young ladies and standards of beauty and the amount of month, time, energy and money that folks invest in hair straightening and skin, skin lightening products, and the like, uh, but it, it almost, if this stuff is, is, is if, if these standards of beauty are ubiquitous, it's really, it's hard to battle it. And the kind of effort you have to put in is almost tantamount to brainwashing, but you really have to train yourself to realize that these are man-made standards of beauty. And uh, you, you know, you have to defend your mind and your psychology against these, um, these really powerfully negative ideas. And there is literature that, uh, that shows an association between skin color and various opportunities uh, that, that Huma mentioned. Uh, so, uh, and I know historically in the African-American community, there was significant colorism. And then there was the concept of at least uh, within the slavery system, the field Negro and the house Negro and, uh, you know, the house Negro tended to be uh, the progeny of uh, the slave master and some of his slaves. And they had these mixed race children that tended to be lighter skinned and had less coarse hair and less ethnic facial features and various uh, uh, advantages were, were bestowed upon them. However, in America, I don't know if this is the world around. I'm not as widely traveled as I, as I should be. I've never been to Asia. I've gone to Europe a, couple, a few times. But in America, you're either white or you're not. And so life is a lot easier if you approach it from that standpoint, because no matter how light you are or how non-ethnic you think you are, in this country, at some point you'll be reminded that you are not white. And so uh, I completely reject the notion of, of ever trying to become white. That's just, I'm, I'm so proud of, of who I am and the skin that I'm in. It wasn't always this way. It's something I had to work and train for. But um, another, a final thing too is, Many African-Americans, we see what's happening in this country now, and we're, we're, we're almost like, we told you so. We told you so. Now yeah. it's, it's simply revealed itself. But uh, anyway, yeah. I'll stop. Yeah, you know, I'll just add something. And I think I mentioned the, the pseudoscientific belief. I think that's, it was also expounded by scientists that 
that they said they had empirical evidence where you know white people were superior to to the blacks to the dark-skinned people and we had people i think there was darwin and a couple of other um quite a few other scientists who sort of um you know expounded this narrative and it stuck for a while and i think we've that's sort of the roots of the racism that we are still experiencing. Yeah. Um, Could so I give an example of historic racism? Have Please. we all taken or heard of a test called the SAT? Yes. So there was a researcher, a psychologist at Princeton University named, his last name was Brigham. I don't know if his first name was Peter. He was tasked with developing a standardized test to assess problem solving ability in military recruits. And this was early, this was leading up to World War II. Shortly after that, his test was adapted. It was adapted to, uh, it, it basically, it was the progenitor of the scholastic aptitude test, the SAT. Brigham, Dr. Brigham was a lead proponent of a movement called eugenics, uh -huh. that uh, it was a pseudoscience that conferred, that espoused the following belief that if you were of European extraction, you were inherently superior, whether it be based in intelligence or, or what beauty and the like, particularly intelligence. This is the father of the SAT. And so now you understand. So I would always hear when I was younger that the SAT was a culturally biased test. And that, that never sat well with me. I said, where's the evidence? But this is, you know, this, all this is available. So you mean to tell me that this guy was a major proponent of, of the eugenics movement and he developed this test? So, you know, so he developed a test to prove that white people were superior. So yeah. that's, again, that's just one strand of evidence. So, um, but most people don't know that, right? And also I thought that when I was younger, I thought that it, it was largely driven by socioeconomics, that you could transcend these things if you could hire an army of tutors and you, you know, you lived it, you uh, were higher income and you lived in a high uh, property tax value area and you had schools with more resources and the like. But even if you control for those factors, there's this notion of the academic achievement gap at all income levels based on standardized test scores, right? But that is the history of that particular test. And most people don't even know that. So since you focus a lot of your research and, you know, um, outside of, you know, being a psychiatrist at your hospital, how would you, how do you speak to, you know, other African-Americans kind of seeking out mental health help when you know the history of this country um, for centuries and still to this day, you know, kind of have used and done tests against African-Americans and, you know, the medical community has not been, kind, I mean, that's kind of an understatement. <laughs> They've been quite um, discriminatory and, you know, doing cruel and unethical tests, you know, on them. So how do you kind of speak to African-American, um, African-Americans, you know, that you're around and encourage them to seek treatment? A few quick things. 
strongly recommend the following books. Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. Excellent, thoroughly researched. And it talks about the real, the grotesque history of, uh, of experimentation on African-Americans uh, by organized medicine. So there's that. Another book I would strongly recommend is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, The Origins of Our Discontents. That, that is the best book I've read, uh, the best book written on race that I've ever read. Uh, and it was in Oprah's book club 2020. Uh, and it talks about uh, the caste system in India, the caste system in Nazi Germany, and the caste system in the United States. Uh, so moving on. Um, how do we engage African-Americans uh, in terms of seeking mental health treatment in the setting of this, this historic mistreatment by the medical establishment? Number one, we know there's significant distrust. And this is actually what fueled us to form the company Global Health Psychiatry, uh, because we felt there would be no better ambassadors for mental health treatment in the African-American community than uh, very knowledgeable, well-trained African-American psychiatrists, because we suspected that folks would give us the benefit of the doubt that we're not here to oppress you. We're not here to encourage you to take exorbitant doses of psychotropic medication and to bomb the brains of your children. But we believe that what we have to offer is so needed in our community and that we could be excellent messengers to speak to the fears, uncertainties and the anxieties in these communities because we're products of the community. So uh, we've been very fortunate in publishing literature, not for other professionals, uh, but for lay people who don't have the education and training we have. So we could deliver, we could cut out the middleman and deliver the message directly to the people to encourage them to get the help, the help that they need, knowing that they would give us the benefit of the doubt. We've been very blessed in that the community has embraced us. Also, folks have reached a point in this country where they want professionals serving them who look like them. They don't want white folks telling them what they should and should not do. And fortunately, we're at a point in this country where uh, members of, of various uh, groups of color have taken advantage of educational opportunities and you have more and more of these professionals. So you could accomplish a lot based on who the, based on who the messenger is. And so we've been able to exploit that. Yeah. I think those are all really, really good points. Um, and I think what I kind of take out of this is, you know, with my population of um, patients, they're inmates for the most part. So inmate patients, I think it's really important to um, validate their feelings and acknowledge their feelings. You know, there is, there are a lot of African-Americans and Hispanics in the prison population. So to validate, you know, that they may not have had all of the, the, the resource, they, they didn't have the privilege as others, you know, acknowledge your privilege, um, have the uncomfortable conversations with them. I think they respect you more when you kind of shoot straight with them and kind of just say, you know, I know you don't have it, 
as fair. I know that you you kind of had this against you. I know that this worked against you. I know the system worked against you. And that's not taking away from their own personal responsibility for whatever their actions were. And and I always um, emphasize that that you know you 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 have to take responsibility and ownership. But I acknowledge that you might have been or were at a disadvantage. You know, and and I think it's important to kind of create that dialogue again. Dialogue. I always like use this term because it's so important. But we really have to have the uncomfortable conversations. There's like this movement these days to like ignore skin color. And, and that's like shown to even pr pretty much perpetuate racism. You have to acknowledge skin color. Don't ignore race. It's part of someone's identity. Um, you're only dismissing their experiences if you don't acknowledge their skin color. You know, so we don't want to do that. We don't want to be like colorblind. You know, we, we do have an external race. We do have our own identity our race has created different experiences for us. So acknowledge that, be uncomfortable, validate their feelings, acknowledge your privilege um, and, and have a dialogue, have an open dialogue. And I feel like people respect you more, especially my guys, my inmates, you know, they, they respect you more when you're like, listen, I know, you know, this is what's going on. If you kind of like beat around the bush, these guys are smart, they're street smart. They, they, they grew up in places that we never, could dream of growing up a lot of us, you know, and in situations that we we can't even fathom. They're smart. So they know when people are BSing them, they know when people are kind of treading lightly. Um, so with my specific population, I just like to kind of be straightforward and be like, yeah, you know, I, I know I'm at advantage for these things. I know that this is what happened. I know, I kind of know, like, just validate what they're going through. And I think that could be related to everyone. It's not just, you know, my population. I think if you acknowledge and validate people's experiences, that's going to take you a long way. Could, could I jump in really quickly? Of course. Kuma brought up a good point when she's talking about these, these um, Black and, and, and Latino uh, men in, in the forensic population. You have to understand in America, America's original sin is racism. It is related to almost everything. Exhibit A, we all heard about the opiate epidemic and this big push for treatment. And uh, sadly enough, you had a lot of white males who were dying from this opiate epidemic. But if you rewind to the 80s, the 70s and the 80s, and the ascendancy of crack cocaine that was largely in communities of color, there was a war on that drug problem versus a tidal wave and avalanche of treatment opportunities for this drug problem based on the, the, different, the different demographic groups that were affected. So, of course, you have all these Black and Latino men, and they had the three-strike laws, right? And they had different sentencing laws based on powder cocaine and crack cocaine. So yeah. these, these are not bad, evil people. These were people who lacked resources to properly defend themselves from a justice system that was simply wrong, right? Yeah. And so, Right. And then it, so it's it really it can't be divorced from the story of America. It just yeah. simply can't. Yeah. I remember when people used to tell me or say to me like years ago that, oh, well, racism doesn't exist. And I would tell them, mm, look inside the prison population, like mm -hmm. come come take a look at where I work and then you'll change your mind because mm -hmm. 
they were getting sentenced disproportionately. There, there's a lot of things that have affected these people. And again, I never, ever, ever, ever say that they're not responsible for their actions. I always tell my guys that you are 100% responsible and take ownership. But I don't think that, you know, I think you can do that and still acknowledge the disadvantages. You can still acknowledge that there was a system that worked against them. And it did. I see it. You know, I used to read sentencing reports. I used to, I used to see what they were booked for. I used to see what their sentences were. I used to see a lot of things. I used to be, you know, um, working between the releasing inmates. So I would work with the parole board. So I, I had access to everything, victim statements. I mean, everything. And some of these cases you take a look at and you just don't understand it. You really don't. You almost feel like, you know, there have been times where I've left there and just been so devastated at the fact that I'm going home and some of these guys aren't. And it just doesn't make sense, you know, for some of them. And not all, I mean, you know, th there are people who, you know, who deserve to be sentenced for a long time, but there are a lot of people in there that did get the short end of the stick. They didn't have access to good attorneys. They may have gotten a judge who was in a bad mood that day. The color of their skin affected, you know, their, sim their sentencing. There, there's a lot of things going on. So I think, again, we just need to acknowledge it and we need to validate other people and we need to acknowledge our privilege. There's a lot of things that we've gotten away with. You know, if you're an attractive female, there's a lot of things that you get away with if you have lighter skin color. There's just a lot of things that people get away with because they have privilege. And I think you have to acknowledge that. Yeah, I, you know, by the, by the grace and mercy of Allah, I've always gotten over with police because I'm a physician. So I tell them, you know, you know, if, if I'm speeding, which I really don't do that often, and I get pulled over, I'm always a physician who's post-call. And, and, you know, and I, I'm extra humble and I act like they have a gun with bullets, which they have and I don't. And so, you know, thank a lot, I've managed to get off. But that, again, that's, that's, that's a form of privilege, you know? Yeah. Definitely. And also, another thing I wanted to add is, um, even as mental health providers, we also have internal biases. And we've actually seen this historically, um, where we've had preconceived notions of various ethnic groups, like black people have been getting diagnosed with schizophrenia more than the average population. Um, so it's there's a lot of diagnosis than a mood disorder, right? There's a lot of internal bias that can lead to overdiagnosing or underdiagnosing. For example, Asians, again, model citizen, you might not ask them about substance use issues because you just think that they're the type of people that won't have substance use issues. You know, so there's a lot of things that we have preconceived ideas of, even as mental health professionals who are aware of this, um, that we kind of have to be mindful with. Even myself, like every time I meet a patient, I have to kind of be mindful of, okay, wait, why am I not asking this question to him? Because he doesn't seem like he fits, you know, quote unquote, the type of person. So we kind of have to steer away from this and, and acknowledge our own internal biases as well as, you know, extra, like, in the mental health setting, if that makes sense. Definitely, thank you so much. Um, we've really covered a lot of topics today. I honestly would rather spend hours spend talking to you all about this, but obviously you don't have the time for that. Um, may I reward you um, three for taking the time to kind of sit with me and kind of talk about this issue that hasn't really been spoken about. Um, I really want, you know, 
things to really change for the future and show up for future generations where, you know, mental health and, you know, seeking treatment won't be such a hurdle as it is today. And it won't be as expensive or inaccessible as it is um, today. Um, but is there any last minute comments or anything you'd like to say? You know, I just want to add, and I know Hamna, you know that about me. Um, so I'm really big. I think we spoke about the coping mechanisms and, you know, what can help us. And for me, kindness and empathy are very huge things that I value. Um, and I was just, you know, doing some of my research and just want to throw this out there that um, we have so many, we have so much research that links um, random acts of kindness to releasing dopamine, um, to releasing oxytocin, to, to releasing um, um, this, this uh, endorphin-like chemical, which is called substance P, which can actually relieve pain. So empathy is not only something that we help to help others, but we also help ourselves. Um, and I think that is what will bridge the gap um, you know, between the, the toxicity of this world sometimes to, to being you know, at peace, to becoming whole human beings. Um, so I have a lot of stuff on it, but I know we don't have time. So I just wanted to sort of throw that out there. Um. I'll jump in. Thank you, Daria. Um, I want to encourage the young Muslims out there to embrace your Muslim identity. And don't run away from it at all. All of my achievement, my accomplishment, my swag, whatever you want to call it, comes from um, me being a, a humble servant of Almighty God, Allah. Uh, just considering where I started and to where I am now, none of it would be possible without my al-Islam. And the other thing too is you can try to be something other than you are, but the world doesn't see you that way, especially in this country. So um, uh, my al-Islam is my armor. Uh, it protects me psychologically from all these assaults on whether it be self-esteem or psychology. And so I really want Muslim young people to step into their power, embrace their deen, and uh, be boldly confident and unapologetic in who they are. Uh, and when you do that, when, when, you, uh, when you thoroughly and completely accept who you are, people will respect you because they have no choice. So, um, and you, you shouldn't look up to other human beings as if their systems are superior to yours because they're not. Yeah. And I just want to um, end with, again, just emphasizing, you know, validate and acknowledge someone's identity, validate and acknowledge their feelings, validate and acknowledge their struggles. Um, everyone is facing things in different ways. They have different experiences. They have, they were raised differently. They live in different communities and we just need to do better at, um, you know, being empathetic, like Thuria said to that. We also need to, be better at leaving our internal biases at the door, you know, not letting it dictate how we see other people working collectively. The only way that we can kind of get through stigma, be less racist, kind of work through all of this is as a collective unit, you know, we're all in this together. We're all human beings. So really, really kind of um, focus on your humanity while acknowledging everyone else's individualism. Thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate um, you three taking the time out and sitting down with me and kind of answering my questions. I think it'll be really beneficial for 
you know, people around my age and, you know, for all generations, of course, to hear about, you know, mental health, especially with the Muslim community. And I think it's honestly something that's encouraged by our faith, you know, to really better ourselves and to use our faith to cope with, you know, the uncertainty that is going on right now. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for everyone listening to the second episode of Faith Adelphia, a podcast by Care Philadelphia. Inshallah, we'll be back very soon with a third episode. And in the meantime, please follow us on Facebook at Care Philadelphia and follow us on Instagram at Care Philly. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. alaikum.